0: Chapter 1 of Edward I, this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by caveat. Edward I by Professor T. F. Tout. Chapter 1, Early Years, 1239-1258 to 1258. Edward I was born at Westminster on the 17th of June, 1239. He was the first offspring of the marriage of Henry III with Eleanor of Provence. Henry had long held in special reverence King Edward the Confessor, whose pious, weak but amiable character in some ways is suggestive of his own. He therefore at once bade the child be called Edward, in memory of the Holy King whose ashes reposed in the neighbouring abbey of St. Peter's. A papal legate performed the baptismal ceremony, and among the sponsors was the great Simon of Montfort, Earl of Leicester, newly reconciled to his royal brother-in-law after his audacious marriage with the widowed countess eleanor of pembroke king henry's sister exceptional rejoicings attended the birth of the heir to the crown for many feared that the young queen was barren, and all were glad that a man-child born on english soil and bearing an english name had come into the world to settle the question of the succession to the throne significantly passing over the long line of foreign rulers who had borne sway in england since the norman conquest an English chronicler gleefully traced back young Edward's genealogy to Alfred, the greatest of the old English kings. The laws of the good King Edward, after whom the child had been named, had been the rallying cry of more than one generation of oppressed and downtrodden Englishmen. It was hoped that a new King Edward might renew the golden age of the Holy Confessor. Groaning under weak and irresolute rule, wounded in all their dearest national aspirations, Englishmen looked forward from the dull present to the possibilities of a happier, and brighter future. Nor were such hopes doomed to disappointment, which so commonly waits upon those who reckon upon the goodwill of princes. The son of weak Henry, and the greedy unpopular Eleanor, was destined to become the greatest of English monarchs. Henry III, in many ways, reminds us of Charles I. There is in both kings the same strict religious principle, the same high standard of private life, the same strong and pure domestic affections, the same intelligent artistic temperament, same graciousness, refinement and love of culture. But a complete paralysis of will, an utter absence of straightforwardness, manliness, resolution and clearness of vision made Henry even more unfitted than Charles to act as ruler of England. Like Charles, Henry could never see that the times were changing. He held ideas of his own rights, that the sons of the men who had wrested the great charter from King John would never allow it to pass unquestioned it was not the policy so much as the want of policy of Henry that gave his subjects most offence. Thirteenth-century England had no objection to a strong king, who, clearly grasping the identity of interest between himself and his people, strove with might and main to grapple with anarchy and lawlessness, and drive the people into the ways of sound rule and good order. Henry III was too feeble, too frivolous, too idle to be such a king. Moreover, he was jealous and suspicious of all able men, he was afraid to allow his ministers to exercise the powers that he was too weak to use himself. He strove to rule personally, through clerks, dependents and foreign favourites. The result was an almost complete collapse of all sound rule. While the material and spiritual activities of the nation were alike rapidly expanding, the strong centralised government which Henry II had handled down to his son was smitten with palsy. The begging friars were working out a great religious revival, The young enthusiasm of the Oxford masters had made England the home of an intellectual activity that could only be paralleled in the great University of Paris. Roger Bacon was preparing the way for English medicine and science. Vast and noble minsters in the pointed style were arising throughout the land, proclaiming the culmination of medieval art. The English tongue was again becoming a vehicle for original literature, while in the learned Latin and the noble French, a vigorous and abundant crop of great works were written by Englishmen. Englishmen were again conscious of national life and national unity. But with the weak Henry on the throne, political progress that should match the rapid movement of the greatest and most constructive period of the Middle Ages could only be obtained through revolution. Henry III was himself in full sympathy with at least the religious and artistic movements of his time. His love of English saints, his anxiety to uphold English power abroad, shows that he was no mere foreigner, as often been said. His wife and his mother a Provincial and a Poivetienne, exercised an unhappy influence upon him. The Provincial and the Savoyard, uncles of his wife, his Poivetienne half-brothers, by his mother's second marriage, claimed the chief places in his court and councils and aspired to the greatest offices, estates and dignities in the land. Henry's superstitious fear of papal authority, combined with a shrewd sense of the temporal benefits to be got from a close friendship with the spiritual head of the church, exposed England to the invasion of a swarm of greedy foreign ecclesiastics. The very good points of Henry told against his popularity as a king. His appreciation of the great position of the Roman Church, his sympathy for the great wave of religion and culture which radiated from the France of St. Louis, and exercise and influence over Western Europe only second to that exercised by the France of Rousseau and Voltaire, led Henry to a love of foreign manners and methods that became increasingly repugnant to his nobles. The barons of England might talk French at home and vie with Henry in their love of French ways, but French-speaking Englishmen of the 13th century were no more good Frenchmen in the political sense than the French-speaking Vandois or Genevese of today. Since the loss of Normandy under John, most of the English barons had become sound English patriots and enemies of French political influence, however fully they shared in the international civilization of the French-speaking world. Queen Eleanor of Provence exercised over Henry III the same fatal influence that Henrietta Maria wielded over Charles I. She was indeed a stronger and less frivolous character than her antitype. She inherited the subtle will and the bright poetic nature of her father, Raymond Berenger IV, the last Count of Provence, of the native line, and himself not the meanest of the poets in the soft and melodious provencal tongue. From her mother, Beatrice of Savoy, came the harder, clearer, more grasping temperament which was already a characteristic of the rising house of savoy she was one of the four fair sisters all in their turn became queens quattro figli ebi e ascuna regina Eleanor's elder sister margaret was the wife of louis the ninth better known as saint louis then at the height of his power and the strongest king who had ever yet reigned in france her next sister Sancia, married Henry III's only brother, Earl Richard of Cornwall, while her younger sister took the rich inheritance of Provence to her husband, Charles of Anjou, the brother of Louis IX, and the future conqueror of Sicily. But despite her French connections by marriage, Eleanor cannot herself be described as French in any strict sense of the word. Her family had long headed the unavailing struggle against the extension of North French influence into Landoc and Provence. But a foreign girl from the South, who never understood the ways and manners of an Englishman, and was, moreover, proud, greedy, extravagant, and overbearing, could not but exercise an evil influence over a weak, irresolute, and luxurious husband. With all their faults, Henry and Eleanor were devoted to each other, and set an example of family life that was rare in those days of brutality and violence. They showed no less devotion to their children, and all through his life, Edward was bound by the strongest ties of duty, and affection to his kindly, affectionate, and loving father, and his proud, high-spirited, and passionate mother. Henry and Eleanor kept their son more about them than was usual in the formal households of the time. Up to the age of seven, Edward was mainly brought up at Windsor, under the care of Hugh Gifford. He seemed to have been delicate and to have suffered some severe illnesses. When he was seven, he fell sick at Beaulieu Abbey. Whether he was being taken by his mother to be present at the dedication of the church... For three weeks he lay in danger, and his mother, to the scandal of the strict sisters, insisted on staying in the convent that she might nurse him. A year later Edward was dangerously ill in London, and at the king's request prayers were offered up for his recovery in all the monasteries in and near the city. But as he grew older, Edward got over his childish weakness. He became a tall, attractive, handsome boy, with bright flaxen locks and proud, rather domineering manners. Nor was his education neglected. French, Latin, and English he could understand with equal facility, and despite a stammer, he became ultimately an eloquent speaker in at least French and English. There is little evidence of his literary attainments and scanty proof of any love of books. Probably he was all through his life fonder of action than of speculation. But he certainly must have gone through that elaborate drilling in the routine of business, which he afterwards strove in vain to enforce on his unhappy son. We are still more certain that he went through a careful legal training, perhaps under the guidance of the chancery clerk, Robert Bernal, who became his chaplain and confidential servant, and to whom he was ever warmly attached. His father's real religious feeling ensured for Edward a strict religious education. The home lessons of purity and piety took a deep root, and all through his life Edward was honourably distinguished by his uprightness of his private life, and the strength and fervour of his religious principles nor were the martial exercises which became a prince neglected. From an early age, Edward became famous throughout Christendom as the bravest and most dexterous of warriors. He gained many notable successes in tournaments against some of the doughtiest champions of the day. He was equally expert in hawking and hunting, a fearless and dexterous horseman, and a proficient in all martial and manly sports, especially those that had in them a spice of danger. Among his most ordinary companions were his cousin, Henry of Alamein, the son of Richard, Earl of Cornwall, who was soon to become the titular king of the Romans, and his other cousins, the four young Montforts, of whom the eldest, Henry de Montfort, was nearly his own age. The Montforts were a fierce, violent, brutal youths, and marked out for stormy and ill-fated careers. Not less violent were Edward's young point of uncles, the Sanguines, the offspring of his father's mother, Isabella of Anglian, by her second marriage with the Count of La Marche and who came, like the soviet kinfolk of Henry's wife, to share the bounty of their half-brother the king. Edward himself was not unmarked by the same taint in early manhood. After he had been given a household of his own, the violence and brutality of his followers involved their masters in an unpopularity which was not quite undeserved. With lordly good nature, Edward bestowed his confidence on ruffian officials who oppressed and robbed his tenants in his name. Nor were his own acts blameless. Strange tales were told of the lawless deeds wrought by the heir to the throne out of mere love of mischief or wanton cruelty. The progresses of the Lord Edward and his band of two hundred horsemen, mostly foreigners, were like the movements of a desolating plague. Not even Louis of France, the invader of England in King Henry's youth, had taken about with him such a band of ruffians and desperadoes. No common man had any rights that such high spirited gentlemen could regard as sacred. They stole horses, the waggons, and the provisions that came nearest to their hands. Even monks were spoiled and maltreated by these reckless youths. One day, when Edward paid a visit to his uncle, Richard, at Wallingford, his followers took violent possession of the neighbouring priory, and driving out and insulting the lawful owners, stole their food, destroyed their property, and beat their servants. On another occasion, Edward was passing along a road, and, out of mere wantonness, ordered his followers to cut an ear off, and pluck out an eye of a harmless youth who had happened to cross his path more gloomy forebodings were expressed as to what would happen under so headstrong and reckless a ruler. But if courtly complacency is wont to magnify the virtues of the young princes, common gossip is at least as apt to exaggerate their vices. Regard for human suffering was a very rare quality in the Middle Ages, at least outside church and cloister. Yet it is hard to believe that Edward was guilty of anything worse than youthful carelessness and an overweening pride in his exalted position. Badly served he may well have been, and all through his life it was among his chiefest misfortunes that the execution of his plans had to be confided to agents quite unworthy to give proper effect to them, who with all his love of joustings and hunting events showed that he seldom neglected his serious business. Men lived short lives in the Middle Ages and correspondingly began their active career at an exceedingly early age. The medieval prince or noble was often a warrior, a practised statesman, a husband and a father, when little more than a mere boy. This was the case with Edward. He was only eight when his father began to think of providing him with a wife. But the negotiations entered upon in 1247, for a marriage between the young Edward and a daughter of the Duke of Brabant led to no result. When Edward was about 13, fresh marriage negotiations were begun with Alfonso X, King of Castile. This prince was a descendant of Eleanor, daughter of Henry II, from whose marriage with King Alfonso Eighth of Castile had resulted a long and intimate connection between England and Castile, which colored the whole of our foreign policy right up to the Reformation. But marriage connections involved not only the relations of kinship, but unpleasant claims of right. Alfonso X was the most powerful of the Spanish kings, an able, vigorous, active, and aggressive ruler. The compilation of the code of the city Paritis made his reign an epoch in the history of Castile, while his adventurous disposition led him later to accept the doubtful advantage of election to the Holy Roman Empire in rivalry to Edward's uncle, Earl Richard of Cornwall. The same restless and aggressive spirit Alfonso now showed by entertaining the appeals of the rebellious Gascon subjects of the English king, who called upon him to vindicate his claims to the Duchy as the heir of Eleanor of Guillaume. It was even believed in England that Alfonso proposed to invade England with an army of Castilians and Saracens. Henry thought it wise to remove the possibilities of a conflict and restore the old friendly relations with Castile by a proposal to marry Edward to Alfonso's half-sister, Helena, the daughter of King Ferdinand the Saint, by his second wife, Joan of Ponthieu, a young girl already reputed to possess great beauty, goodness and sound sense and who was, moreover, in right of her mother, heiress of the rich counties of Ponthieu and Montreal in western Picardy. That Edward himself might not go landless to the marriage, Henry conferred upon his son such extensive territories that he became, men said, no better than a mutilated king. In 1253, Henry sailed to Gascony, hoping to appease some disturbances that were raging there, and conclude the match. Edward, who was taken to Portsmouth to see his father depart, stood weeping upon the shore as the ship sailed away, and would not leave it as long as the sail could be seen. Eleanor remained in England to look after her son and the realm. The next summer the marriage treaty was signed and in the early summer of 1254 Edward sailed with his mother and his uncle Archbishop Boniface of Canterbury to join his father in Gascony. In August he went to Alfonso's court at Burgos to carry on his suit in person. His mother still accompanied him. Alfonso received him with great pomp and festivity examined the youth in his skill and knowledge and conferred upon him the honour of knighthood. In October he was married to Eleanor at the monastery of Las Welgers and shortly afterwards returned with his wife to Bordeaux, when, a year later, they returned to England. The marriage thus concluded between the royal children proved one of the happiest in English history. Edward and Eleanor rivaled Henry and Eleanor in the warmth of their attachment and the purity of their domestic lives. They were scarcely ever separated, Eleanor making it her pride to share in the toils and dangers of her husband. On her death after 35 years of happy wedlock, Edward experienced the most poignant grief. His whole character changed for the worse after the removal of the faithful partner of his youth and early manhood. In the 13th century, a king's son did not form a member of the special royal caste. He had no distinctive title, and was brought up very much like any other young man of the high birth. The old English word of aetheling had ceased to be used as the appointee designation of the son of a crowned and anointed king. The vaguer modern word prince did not come into use for many centuries later. The eldest son of the English king had no higher title than the vague appellation of Lord, which he shared with a whole host of feudal chieftains, great and small, with the bishops, abbots, judges, and even the masters and doctors of the universities. To speak of our hero as Prince Edward is an anachronism, though sometimes it is a convenient one. Contemporaries were content to call him the Lord Edward, the firstborn son of the king, or more shortly, the Lord Edward. It is best to imitate their example. The provision for a medieval king's son was not made by grants and pensions from the civil list, but by the conference of a large estates and territories which he was expected to manage as a landlord, if not also to rule as a feudal chieftain. It was only through the successful administration of his domains that he could expect to get an adequate income for himself. The privilege of receiving the revenue of his appanage thus involved the duty of hard work in his government. It was, moreover, a very common practice all over Europe to confer upon the youthful heir some outlying and semi-independent portion of the royal domains that was not strictly a part of the main kingdom, and which gave the young prince a wide and free field to learn how to govern and prepare himself for the larger task of ruling the kingdom itself. A familiar, though, later example is the grant to the French king's heirs of the outlying district of Dauphigny, whence the well-known title of Dauphin. In the next century, it became the custom in England confirm the king's eldest son, the Principality of Wales. But long before this had grown into a regular fashion, long before the Principality was in the king's hands to bestow, a similar practice had arisen. The lavish grants of territory made, as we have seen to Edward between 1252 and 1254, had not simply the object of providing him with an adequate revenue to keep his court in due state with his young wife. They were also made with the design of giving him experience as a ruler in those districts of his father's dominions, where the most valuable experience could be got. The ample provision made for Edward included, indeed, certain English cities such as Bristol, Stamford and Grantham. But these were but an insignificant portion of the whole. The real importance of the grant lies in the gift to Edward of all Ireland, the earldom of Chester, the King's lands in Wales, the islands of Jersey and Guernsey with their dependents, and the whole of Gascony with the Isle of Oleron, and whatever rights the king still had over all the other lands taken from his predecessors by the kings of France. It was, in short, the transference from Henry to Edward, of all those parts of the British Isles outside England itself, where the English king had any claim to rule. Along with these outlying dependencies went every vestige that remained of the Norman inheritance of William the Bastard, and the Aquitanian inheritance of Eleanor of Guion edward was thus made the representative of the claims still brought forward from time to time for the restitution of the great Angevin empire reduced to insignificance by the heedless folly of john and the watchful aggressions of the french kings the results of both series of grants were of unspeakable importance for the future history of edward and indeed for the future destinies of the british isles it was perhaps the greatest work of edward's life to revive and extend the policy of the great west saxon kings before the conquest of reducing the whole British islands under the rule of the English king. The firmness and clearness with which Edward persisted in this policy may be in no small measure attributed to his early experience as ruler of Wales, Chester and Ireland. Hardly second in importance to the imperial schemes of Edward in Britain was a firm policy with which he upheld England in the foremost place in the councils of Europe. This again can be traced back to his early experiences as a ruler of the English King's dominions in France. That he thought the real acquisition of Wales, Scotland, and Ireland more important and more worthy objects than vain attempts to renew the Angevin Empire on the continent is perhaps almost equally true of his later policy. His early Gascon training gave him opportunities for reforming the institutions and developing the resources of his great feudal duchy, when it could not but convince him of the real limitations imposed upon his power in the south of France. It is important to realise the exact position of the lands made over by Henry to Edward when the young prince was started on his active career. The appanage he received was a large one, but it was so unprofitable that Henry had to promise his son that the value of the lands settled on him should not fall short of 15,000 marks. In fact, Edward's whole lordship was in such disturbed state that the maintenance of law and order within could only be assured by means of lavish subsidies from the royal exchequer. Such subsidies Henry was in no condition to make. The impossible task was therefore assigned to Edward and his advisers of reducing Ireland, Wales and Gascony with their own resources, while at the same time it was necessary that sufficient revenue should be derived from these poor and disturbed regions to provide the support of their lord's household. Ireland was all of Edward's minions in the most hopeless position. The first energies of the Norman conquerors of the 12th century had been exhausted, Though the great Norman houses still ruled the extensive territories, they had begun to experience the attraction of Irish influence, and besides, the hibernization of the Norman lords the native septs were coming down from the hills and disputing with their new masters the dominion of the plain country but the power of the English crown had become insignificant alike over Norman lord and Irish chieftain. Edward's deputy at Dublin could command the obedience of neither. The Celtic chieftains upheld the tribal anarchy of the old Irish septs. The Norman lords saw their ideal of government in a political feudalism which gave the great landlord every regalian right and necessarily involved the complete disintegration of all central authority. The central power was weak, foreign and unpopular. These complicated evils had reduced the unhappy island to a state of confusion almost worse than that which had been veiled in the wild times of independence before Strongbow and his associates had crossed the St George's Channel. To grapple seriously with such difficulties was beyond the strength of Edward's advisers. They paid little attention to Ireland, preferring to concentrate their efforts on the smaller and much more accessible territory of Wales. The plans of Edward's advisers in Wales for the reduction of Wales were made possible by the grant of the great earldom of Chester. Ever since the conquest, Chester had been a district standing by itself. It was a palatine earldom set up by the conqueror to keep in check the wild Welshmen. With this object, the Earl was given an absolute control of the civil and military resources of his shire. His duties to the crown were discharged by simple homage and service. He held Chester as freely by his sword as the king held England by his crown. This position is in all respects analogous to that of the practically independent feudal chieftains of France or Germany. The result was that Cheshire became a military state. Its population were famed for their violence, turbulence and martial powers. Headed by their fierce lords, the Cheshiremen had conquered nearly all Wales between the Dee and the Conway, though a latter wave of Welsh enthusiasm had driven the invaders back almost to the walls of Chester. But the great lines of earls of Chester was now extinct. The bestowal of lap's feats was among the most important of the prerogatives of the crown. It was no small gain to the royal cause that Henry was thus able to invest his son with a rich, fair and fertile palatinate It involved revenue, soldiers, influence, dignity and the status of the greatest of English earls. He gave the new Earl of Chester means to make the good the vaguer Grant of Wales. Wales included all exceptional jurisdictions of the Western Peninsula, largely but by no means exclusively inhabited by Welshmen. In thinking of Wales of the 13th century, we must forget the modern boundary which separates the 12 or 13 counties of Wales of today from the modern England. The boundary goes no further back than the reign of Henry VIII, 13th century Wales included much of what is now England, while some parts of what is now Wales were then English ground. Beyond the vague and undefined western limits of Cheshire, Shropshire, Herefordshire and Gloucestershire, everything was Wales. Before the Norman Conquest, Wales had been ruled by a swarm of petty Celtic chieftains whose energies were consumed in fruitless fights with one another. The true battles of kites and crowns of British history. All owed a nominal allegiance to the English kings, but this lax feudal tie did not prevent them from plundering and devastating the English border whenever a fair opportunity was offered. But the strong rule of William I and his sons brought a great change. The Norman conquest of England was followed by the Norman conquest of Wales. A swarm of Norman adventurers crossed over the border and drove the Welsh from the Fair Plains to the barren uplands. The mutual jealousies of the petty Welsh kings and princes made national union impossible and without union, effectual resistance to the Normans was hardly to be thought of. But the Norman conquerors were as little united as the Welsh that they displaced, as in Ireland, the ideal of a feudal lord and clan chieftain had this in common, that it involved an infinite division of political power. The Norman conquerors of Wales fought for their own hands, and were almost independent of the kings of England. They set up therefore a whole host of petty states, over which they ruled like little kings. These small Norman principalities on Welsh ground were known as the Lordships Marcher and the whole district as the Marchers of Wales, although the original idea of the march as a border was largely lost in an age when the Welsh Marches included a district so remote from the English border as a great part of the modern Pembrokeshire. The most important of the Lordships Marcher of Wales were the Palatine Earldom of Pembroke and the great Lordships of Glamorgan, whose lords were not called earls, only because they had already that title from their English earldom of Gloucester. Next in importance was the Lordship of Brecon, an appendage to the earldom of Hereford. More to the north, the great family of Mortimer bore a sway in Shropshire and the Middle Marches. The four Cantrads, Peverad, the Plain Country, Ross, Rönnevig, the Clwyd, and Terregel were roughly cons- corresponded to modern Denbyshire and Flintshire, depended on the earl of Chester. All southern eastern Wales was thus March ground. The Norman conquest also indirectly affected Welsh Wales. It finally forced the native Welsh to unite among each other as the only alternative to complete subjugation. A great national and literary revival broke out in Celtic Wales. The Lords of Gwynedd, whose rule included the mountain fastness of Snowdon and Marianth, and the rich cornlands of Anglesey, became the leaders of the Welsh national revival. Bit by bit, the old jealousies of tribe and tribe of north and south were removed. At last, all Welshmen looked up to the lords of Snowdon as the champions of the national cause against the restless and oppressive French invaders. The greatest of Welsh princes cleverly used this new feeling of national unity to extend his north Welsh principality at the expense of the now divided and quarrelsome marchers. He pushed his successes eastwards to the walls of Chester and southwards to the shores of Carmarthen Bay, thus forcing a wedge of Welsh territory through parts of modern Cardiganshire and Carmarthenshire, though the royal stronghold of Carmarthens still checked his onward progress. But while his praises were chanted by the native bards as the hero of the Cymric race, Llewellyn never forgot that he was only a national Welsh prince, but a great feudal English lord. He accordingly allied himself with the baronial opposition to English kings, and took a prominent part in the struggle for Magna Carta, clauses of which ensured him many important privileges. Before his death in 1240, he was proud to call himself Prince of All Wales. His son, David, 1240-1246, born of his English wife Joan, King John's bastard daughter, was hardly strong enough to uphold Clellyn's power, but after his death, a full-blooded Welshman again acquired the principality. The new prince was David's nephew, Clellyn ap Griffith, the son of Clellyn ap Oryth's favourite son by a Welsh mother. For nearly 40 years, 1246 to 1282, Cloane ap Griffith strove to maintain the policy, both national and feudal, of his grandfather. But at the time we are dealing with now, he had not yet attained any great measure of success. The twofold division of Wales into the Principality and the Marches must never be lost sight of as we wish to understand the Welsh policy of Edward I. We must remember that the Principality did not mean, at that point, as it does in its loose modern use, the whole of Wales, but strictly the districts ruled over by the Prince of Wales, Llewellyn ap Griffith. At this time, that region, roughly comprised what now constitutes the three shires of Anglesey, Carnarvon and Merioneth. The four Canthrads and the lines between Dovey and Carmarthen Bay had fallen to the hands of the English king and were now the main districts granted to Edward. Edward's Welsh lands, therefore, included a great deal of what is now Denbyshire and Flintshire and of what is now Cardiganshire and Carmarthenshire. But beyond these royal dominions were the marches, the term meaning not simply the border districts, but all those parts of Wales ruled over by Norman lords on feudal principles. A few of these may have fallen by lapse into Edward's hands, but the real significance of Henry's grant was that it included all the recent acquisitions from the restless Prince of Wales. Edward had already vigorous and able, though fierce and unscrupulous, advisers his ministers now formed a scheme of introducing English institutions into their master's lands in Wales. The current phrase, well known in Ireland down to the 17th century, for bringing English law into a country was to make the district in question shire ground. Edward's advisers therefore sought to attach the four cantrags to the county of Chester, while they set up a new shire of which the centre was Carmarthen, but which was, for convenience' sake, split up into later into the counties of Cardigan and Carmarthen, So sovereign a remedy was English law considered for the chronic anarchy of Wales, that some Welshmen had actually begged Henry to introduce it into their land, but the whole weight of national feeling clung to the rough, rude laws of Howell the Good, which the Welsh regarded as the basis of their jurisprudence. While Edward's officers were establishing their hundred moots and their shire moots, his Welsh subjects took counsel together and declared that they would never give up the laws of their fathers. The violence and greed with which Edward's deputy, Geoffrey Langley, sought to bring in the new system completed their disgust. In their despair, they turned to the Llewellyn, who gleefully welcomed a chance of winning back the dominions of his grandfather. In the autumn of 1256, Llewellyn's troops poured down from the heights of Snowdon over the four cantrats, the plain country submitted through the goodwill of the native inhabitants for the invaders. Two castles alone, Dyserth, near Rhyl, and Deguany, near Clondono held out for Earl Edward. Edward hurried from the delights of the Tawny and tilt-yard to defend his inheritance, but he had no money and no men to cope with the trained warriors of Cluelan. He soon exhausted a loan he had obtained from his rich uncle, Richard, and earnestly besought his father to come to his assistance. "'What business is it of mine?' answered Henry. "'I have given you the land. You must act for yourself.' But next year Henry was prevailed upon to accompany Edward in an expedition to North Wales.' Father and son penetrated to the sorely beleaguered castle of Degedwy. Where they spent some time, but on their retirement the Welsh again became masters of all the land but a few castles. It was Edward's first campaign, an glorious beginning to so great a martial career, but it gave the young Earl valuable experience in Welsh warfare, and may well have opened his eyes to the weakness and incompetence of his father as a king. It left him discredited, overwhelmed with debt, and eager to bart away part of his patrimony for ready money but it showed in the way by which Llywelyn might some day be conquered, and it showed him more clearly how Wales, if conquered, ought to be ruled. The germ of all Edward's later Welsh policy lies in an early attempt to establish the shire system in his Welsh estates. Gascony, Guyon, or Aquitaine, the terms at this period are at least practically synonymous, was no less than Wales the object of Edward's special concern. It included all that remained in English hands of the vast possessions which Eleanor Pontieu, had brought to her husband Henry the Second. It was a land of great wealth, prosperity, a land of vineyards and rich cornfields, watered by noble rivers, with many a wealthy and flourishing town, and a great band of warlike and turbulent lawless nobility, in whom the wild fierce spirit still lived that from an early age found an underlying expression in the songs of Bertrand de Bon, among whom Richard the Lionheart had found the ideals of his restless, adventurous, purposeless life. Cut off from France by language, manners, sympathies and traditions, the Gascons were content with the rule of the English Dukes, because they were so far off they had little reason to fear them, and because they found in England the best and readiest market for their wines. But the towns were little republics, almost as free and as self-contained as the great cities of Italy, and like them, torn by fierce factions, such as the Rustines and Colons of Baudon, and the popular aristocratic parties of Bayonne. The feudal nobles in their hell castles on the slopes of the Pyrenees and Savans were, from all practical purposes, independent. Chief among them was Gaston, Viscount of Bern, the uncle of Queen Eleanor, and the greediest, cruelest, most desperate, and turbulent of men. Strong neighbors watched eagerly the chronic tumults within the duchy, hoping to derive therefore some advantage to themselves. Of these, the most dangerous were the King of Navarre and Alfonso, Count of Poitiers and Toulouse, the brother of Louis the Ninth of France, actual possessor of the northern and eastern portions of Henry II's Aquitanian inheritance, and the pioneer of North French influence in the Languedoc. Against such complicated truffles, weak King Henry had been able to make no way at all, until in 1248 he had made Simon de Montfort, Seneschal, or Governor of Gascony. Earl Simon's strong, fierce, vigorous rule soon began to work a great change, but he was reckless of his means and strove to do everything at once. He had poor support from England and was soon raised up a whole host of enemies in Gascony who overwhelmed the English king with complaints and eagerly demanded the recall of the Earl of Leicester. This was the state of things when Edward first received the grant of Gascony from his father. His uncle and godfather still remained seneschal, acting henceforth through the son, not for the father. At first the king encouraged Simon, hoping that he would prepare the way for Edward's future role. You shall receive, he wrote to his brother-in-law, from us, our heir, as recompense worthy of your service, it was left to the Gascon towns first to bring Edward into that opposition to Earl Simon, which was to colour the whole of his future life. They hated Leicester and strove to set up a new lord against his fierce deputy. We beg your majesty, wrote the deputies of the flourishing town of Bezuis, to drive Earl Simon from Gascony and send us your son Edward, our lord, who will find us all in peace. Henry, in response, confirmed his grant to Edward but with his usual weakness again sent back Simon as governor, though plainly showing that he no longer had his full confidence. When Henry was in Gascony in 1253, Simon was still seneschal. But next year he was dismissed in disgrace and filled with a burning sense of wrong and hatred, plunged eagerly into the camp of the baronial opposition in In 1254 and 1255, Edward himself lived mostly in Gascony. Here too he acquired valuable experience. Apart from the importance of his Gascon rule in first bringing out his opposition to Leicester, it taught him lessons as to how the English king's lands in France should be governed, which in later years bore him excellent fruit. It moreover gave him the insight into South French and Spanish politics, which qualified him to fulfil the leading part in those regions to which in after years he was called. On his return to England, he did not forget the interests of his Gascon subjects. In 1261, he drew up an elaborate series of statutes for Bordeaux, which while taking away from the citizens the right of choosing their own mayor, gave them in compensation full protection from the exactions of royal officials. The need of such protection had been brought home to Edward by the bitter complaints which the wine merchants of Bordeaux now presented to him of the ruin to their trade caused by the extractions of the king's officials. Edward eagerly espoused their cause and plainly told his father that such exactions must cease. For the first time his sense of impolicy of Henry's conduct prompted him to break through a strong ties of affection which bound him to the fondest and most indulgent of fathers. Henry was bitterly offended. My own flesh and blood, he exclaimed with a sigh, are assailing me. The times of my grandfather whose children wage war against him are surely coming back. Nothing shows more clearly the impractical and hopeless attitude of the old king than these foolish and petulant remarks. But the time was coming when Edward's faithfulness to his father was to endure far sterner trials than this, the time of his apprenticeship was over. With the beginnings of the great dispute between Henry and his barons, Edward enters his real political career. End of chapter 1